services. Thank you so much for all that you do. As we transition to our time in the Word uh, and continuing our study in John chapter 12, uh, I want to talk to you this morning about what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's really the kind of the central focus of our, our, our time this morning. Uh, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? And it is fitting that we would have some missionaries with us this morning. It makes the it makes the message feel more uh, significant, so to speak, to have people who have given their lives over to that, that purpose and in that way, uh, although that wasn't by design, it just at least wasn't by my design, it was by God's design. And so uh, we want to ask a question as we begin, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to follow Jesus? The Gospel of John, as we know, as we've been studying, it's, it answers this question in an interesting way kind of a transitional way, so to speak. John tells us that the earliest followers of Jesus, they followed by what we might call personal initiative. Personal initiative. You might remember some of this. Uh, that was the case with Andrew and John as the Gospel of John opened in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Now we read, the next day John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus and he was. He walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. He looked at Jesus. He, Jesus was walking by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, that is Andrew and John, and they followed Jesus. They saw Jesus walk by. John the Baptist said, There he is, and they followed after Jesus. Jesus turned and he saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. This is kind of the first uh, picture of discipleship that we're given from the Gospel of John. Now these disciples would eventually tell their friends and their family and a small band of followers would come together, they would develop. While they, their understanding of Jesus' identity was certainly in process, they didn't understand all he was, who he was and what he would be doing, what he came to do, they did believe that he was the Messiah, the Deliverer that was promised to Israel. Interestingly, while these earliest followers were called disciples, it actually wasn't until the wedding of Cana in Cana that they actually, that we read that they believed. So they didn't initially believe uh, according to the Gospel of John. John 2.11 says this, the first of his signs, that is the turning of water to wine, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then it says, and his disciples believed in him. So they followed by personal initiative. They see his miracles and then they believe, they express belief. Of course, not everybody, not all of these first followers of Jesus came to Jesus and began to follow Jesus for the right reasons. John tells us, or four right reasons, John tells us that some who came to him in these early, early days, they, they came to follow Jesus in what we might call a deficient way, a deficient way. In John 2, verses 23 through 25, it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but it says, very interestingly, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. It's quite a statement. They believed, but he held himself back. He didn't entrust himself to those ones because, he says, he knew, uh, he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
Jesus knew that their faith was deficient. Whatever that looked like, we're, we're not exactly sure, but it was a deficient faith, and so Jesus didn't entrust himself to those people. They likely just believed in his signs, or they saw his signs, and they were amazed at his signs, which is kind of a theme in John, as we've seen. One notable man who came to Jesus early uh, in the early chapters of, of the Gospel of John was Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and a teacher in Israel. John, at this point early in the, in the Gospel, doesn't tell us what happens with Nicodemus. He doesn't actually tell us whether or not Nicodemus believes. And so we see this man. He comes and he, he inquires about Jesus, and he's skeptical, incredulous about who Jesus is. He doesn't know what to believe. Now, we know later in the narrative he will eventually believe and be a follower of Jesus, but in these opening chapters, it's not clear yet. Therefore, in the opening chapters of John's gospel, for the most part, those who follow Jesus do so by what I'm calling personal initiative. Personal initiative. That is, in the beginning, we see people coming to Jesus expressing a kind of personal interest. Now, while the Gospels tell us that the crowds followed Jesus, we've seen that over and over again. These crowds are following Jesus. They're interested in his ministry. Jesus challenges us, challenges the people in the Gospel, and he challenges us to come out of the crowds and to follow him as a disciple, as a disciple. And this call is one, as we'll see, that comes at a cost. It costs us something to follow Jesus. Therefore, there's a movement from personal initiative in the gospel to what we might call calling. From personal initiative, I see Jesus, I'm going to follow after him, to a kind of calling that comes from Jesus. Here's the pattern. The crowds come to see the miracles of Jesus. Jesus summons some of them, and those he summons must then make a choice to follow him. And that following always comes at a cost. You remember the call in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, you remember this, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The very stark uh, language that Jesus uses concerning discipleship. Maybe you recall the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Jesus said to him, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, says, for he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to give up his possessions to follow Jesus. With these passages and similar ones like it, what they reveal is that Jesus has no need for spectators or enthusiasts. Jesus doesn't need a fan base. Jesus calls us out of the crowds to follow him. To put to death every and all allegiance that hinders us from following after him. Again, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It simply means to make him, if I can say this in the simplest way, to make him the central focus of our life. If I were to ask you, 
Who are you? Not your name. I know your name. But who are you? Truly, who are you? Parent? Grandparent? Husband? Wife? A collector? A spender? I don't know, a world traveler? Who are you? What is your identity? Baptist? Presbyterian? Mennonite? (laughs) If I'm a follower of Jesus, well then, that's the answer to the question of who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's the highest thing that I ought to be able to say about myself. Yes, maybe some of those other things are true, but my identity is in Christ. It's who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Frankly, I'm a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's interesting that the early Christians, you remember in the book of Acts, they were called those of the way. I find that a very interesting statement. There was something different about them. They were on a different path. Remember the apostle's response in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss. Any other claim to any other uh, identity that I might uh, uh, be attached to, it's loss. Compared to what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing compares there's, no, any other, there's no, no other identity that I could attach myself to that would have any value at all when it's measured up to Jesus and being His disciple, His follower. I trust you can sense the aim of this morning's message and what we're after this morning. This morning I want us to think about what, it's, what is required of those who wish to follow Jesus those who want to follow Jesus. And we're going to do that from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. And so if you would please stand and we'll read the scriptures together. John 12, verses 12 through 26. The first part of this is a very familiar passage of scripture. John 12, 12. The next day, the large crowds that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches, excuse me, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here's our big idea this morning. You can write it down. Three pronouncements teach us what is required for those who wish to follow Jesus. If you don't like the word pronouncement, you can say announcement. I know it's a big word, but I kept it. Three pronouncements teach us what is required for those who wish to follow Jesus. The first pronouncement is found in a very familiar section of Scripture. Verses 12 through 19 records what we call the triumphal entry. That is, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Passover for the last Passover of his life. This is really the last week of his life. And so the, the rest of the Gospel of John just records that last week of his life. Here he, it appears that he is being coronated or crowned as king of Israel. This passage is preached oftentimes the Sunday before Easter. You probably know that. Typically what we call Palm Sunday. And we call it Palm Sunday because, as we read in this text, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the, crowds, the crowd waved palm branches as no doubt an emblem of victory, the declaration that the king is here. And so they're crowning him as king as he rides in. Matthew tells us that they laid their coats down on the ground for the donkey to ride over. And so this is illustrating this kind of royal entry into Jerusalem. The first pronouncement that we have is found in verse 13. We sang it earlier. It's, we'll call it the pronouncement of favor. The pronouncement of favor. John tells us a large, a large crowd gathered and they cried out, Hosanna! This is verse 13. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This pronouncement is a quote from Psalm 118. I don't know if you have that written down in your Bible there. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. And this word, Hosanna, is something like, save us, or save, I pray. Pronouncement is a cry for salvation and a cry of blessing or favor for Jesus. He is blessed because he comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the crowd is saying. Now much, we've already said, and much has been written about what these crowds, what these Jews expected from Jesus. You probably know some of that. What they were looking for was a, a kind of political leader, a deliverer, a military leader that would deliver them from the hand of Rome, from the, the, the boot of Rome, you might say. Therefore, this crowd was really following Jesus with earthly expectations. We learn more about the crowd in verses 17 and 18. There's kind of two crowds, a crowd that's coming with Jesus, and then there's this other crowd that comes up, and they saw the miracle of, of Lazarus. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went, up, went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Of course, that is raising Lazarus from the dead. These verses reveal the, the superficial nature of the faith that these crowds put in Jesus. 
It's likely the case that this crowd reasoned, well, if Jesus has power to raise the dead, well, he certainly has the power to deliver us from the Roman Empire. Seems to make logical sense. We can see something of the fanfare surrounding Jesus' entry in Jerusalem with the response that, that we see from the Pharisees. Kind of a little bit of a hyperbole here, but it makes the case. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You can imagine from, from their perspective with the crowds crying out, Hosanna, and all of this, uh, you know, all these events happening that kind of threw their hands up in dismay saying, we, well, we've lost it. Here he is, you know, we tried to kill him, we tried to put him to death, we didn't do it in time, and now look, all the crowds, all the people of the known world are following after him. We're losing our power. Of course, we know it will be very short-lived, won't it? In just a matter of days, the crowd will shift direction and they will cry out, crucify him. That'll be on Friday and this is on Sunday. It appears they had lost. Now, there's a clue that the, this royal reign of Jesus won't exactly fit the people's expectations. What is that clue? Well, the clue's a little bit back up. I, I, I skipped it on purpose. Uh, look at verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. This is Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Well, the clue that Jesus' kingly reign is not going to be exactly what they expected is the fact that he's riding on a donkey. A donkey isn't exactly what a, a, you know, a gritty warrior king would ride in on. He would have certainly rode in on some, something like a war horse or something. But he doesn't. Jesus comes in on a donkey, a humble donkey. And he declares that he is the prince of peace. Surprisingly, the crowds overlook this detail and they continue to proclaim Jesus as the conquering king. Well, what does this pronouncement from the crowds teach us about what it means to follow Jesus? Maybe a number of things. Something I'd like to highlight is this. A caution, really, against measuring any ministry by its members. In the case of Jesus, of course, his ministry was sound, no doubt. It was Jesus. Yet the people who followed him, they proved to be lukewarm. And it's also the case that multitudes will surround unsound ministries. In either case, measuring the ministry, measuring a ministry by the multitudes, by who follows, it just proves to be a mistake. In the case of Jesus, yes, the crowds followed him, but they didn't truly believe. They didn't recognize who he was. And it's often true that masses of people will follow ministries, yet that, those masses of people doesn't say anything about the, the actual soundness of that ministry. And so measuring any ministry by a multitude is a mistake. Something we'll see as we move through this passage is that following Jesus can't be equated to any pronouncement, not, not merely a pronouncement. Yes, it's true 
The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, that Jesus is Lord, excuse me, uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, excuse me, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible does say that. So there is some kind of pronouncement, some kind of confession that's required. But the Bible says more. It's not all the Bible says. Mark 8, 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Therefore, while some pronouncement is required, while some confession is certainly required, what Jesus also requires is that we come out of the crowd. Jesus was not some political activist calling for a mass demonstration. Remember John 6, 15, excuse me. After feeding the 5,000, it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He had all the followers. He leaves. Jesus wants followers, not fans. He wants disciples, not devotees. As we continue to move through this passage, we'll see the purpose of Jesus' ministry to the crowds is to call them to call us out of the crowds and for us to make a personal decision for Him. You might say it's to move us from that broad path, wide path, that wide path, that broad path to a narrow path. So we see that through this passage. You have these crowds going down the wide path, and Jesus is calling us out of that path, path into a more narrow path of discipleship. There's a second pronouncement. It's verses 20 and 22. Look at those verses. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Let's call this second pronouncement the pronouncement of inquiry. The pronouncement of inquiry. It's really a request from some Greeks to see Jesus. And the sense here is that they're asking for an interview a probe. They want, they, want to, they want to talk to him. They want to ask him questions. We want to see Jesus and interview him, find out who he is. Now, and they say here, sir, we want to see Jesus. That's, we wish to see Jesus, which is what the text says there. Now, it is safe to say, I think, if we're reading this maybe for the first time, what is this about? It, it seems very strange in this section right here to all of a sudden have some Greeks Remember, we're, we're in Jerusalem at the Passover, a Jewish festival, to have some Greeks all of a sudden show up and make an inquiry into who Jesus is. Seems very strange. It's also strange because no other gospel mentions these Greeks. It's only John who tells us this. Finally, odd that they show up, and John never kind of cleans it up. He never, they never reappear. They're here and then they're gone. So what are we to make of all of that? How should we interpret this event and this pronouncement? Well, here's what I think. 
for what it's worth. I believe John inserts this into the story at this point as a kind of trigger, a kind of prompting for the verses that follow. Namely, for Jesus to say in verse 23, the hour has come. The hour has finally come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that hour, what Jesus is speaking of there, involves the intentional hardening of Israel. Listen to Romans 11, verse 25. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, Paul says. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God, you see, in His infinite wisdom and through His perfect will, has temporarily set aside His specific plan for the nation of Israel in favor of the church which, of course, is made up of believing Gentiles and a believing remnant of Israel. In fact, some of these ideas are found in this very chapter of Scripture. We'll see it in two weeks. If you look over at John 12, verses 38 through 40, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quotes Isaiah here, Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, look what it says there. They could not believe. That's a fascinating truth. The Jews could not believe. That's that partial hardening that Paul talks about in Romans 11. They could not believe. For again, Isaiah says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, Within the scope of John's gospel, you think about the whole narrative of John's gospel, what he's doing here, I believe the pronouncement of these Greeks here, the the final week of Jesus' life, is John's way of saying that Jesus is done speaking to the Jews. It's over. All they want to do is kill him. And so he's done speaking to them. They have not accepted him as their Messiah, and now his focus must shift slowly away from the Jewish nation to the end of the earth. If John does that here in this way, think back about the way Matthew does this in Matthew 13. You remember in Matthew 13, if you're reading through that gospel, Matthew 13 is where the parables come in. And you remember why Jesus gave us the parables, why he spoke to people in parables. It's not because he thought, well, I need, I need a new way to communicate to the Jews. They're, they don't understand my ministry, and so now I'm going to make illustrations for them to understand. That's not the purpose of the parables. What is the purpose of the parables? The, the purpose of the parable is that they can't understand. Jesus is hiding the truth from them. That's a fascinating idea. It's a fascinating truth. He's, he's demonstrating that that God has a plan to usher in the Gentile nation. And so he's hardening them because they rejected him. And so now he actually puts truth in a mysterious story that they can't understand. And so now they have to actually go to Jesus and say, I don't get it, help me understand. And he has to specifically tell them what the parable means. So in, the same, in a similar way, John here is, is kind of demonstrating that with these Greeks who are coming to Jesus and saying, hey, here at Passover, with all these Jews around, we want to see him. And so what does Jesus say next? The hour has come. 
the hour has come. See the same pattern in Acts 1.8. Maybe you remember that. Jesus commands his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem. You remember that? In Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in the same way Jesus' ministry kind of starts in Jerusalem and spirals out, well, the church ministry does the same. It starts in Jerusalem and then it slowly spirals out to the end of the, to the, end of the earth, to Thailand, to Bakersfield. I mean, how far away are we from Jerusalem? I have no idea. But it's far. It's, it's come all the way from Jerusalem to the end of the earth, to Bakersfield, California. That's pretty far. I don't know if Thailand's farther, I don't know. Therefore, the pronouncement of inquiry from the Greeks, as I've called it, to the Gentiles, that's who they are, right? These are just the Gentiles. It's a kind of trigger that allows Jesus to move his focus away from the Jewish nation specifically and toward the Gentiles more generally. And so what does this pronouncement from the Greeks teach us about following Jesus? What can we learn from it? Simply that any and all can follow Jesus. We should be very familiar with this truth. There's no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. These things have been torn down, these divisions between Jew and Gentile. Romans 10, 12, there's no distinction, it says, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. Galatians 5, 6, for Christ Jesus neither, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, Jewishness or Gentileness, counts for anything. It doesn't mean anything. Only, but only faith working through love. Over and over again, Jesus in the Bible and the New Testament topples over ethnic distinctions, social distinctions, social classes. All of it is toppled over. It's brought to nothing in the New Testament. It's brought to nothing by Jesus. There's nothing you are There's nothing you aren't. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you haven't done that cuts you off from the work of God. That being said, there's one thing, there's one thing that will hinder you from experiencing the love of God. There's only one thing. Do you know what that is? It's unbelief. It's the only thing. Unbelief is the only thing that hinders you from experiencing the love of God. And the opposite is true. The only requirement, the only requirement for experiencing the joys of our Creator is belief. That's all you need is belief. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Romans 5, 1, 2, since we, have just, since we have been justified, declared righteous, that's what that means, therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace 
in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. These are the the highest truths we, we know of. That we can have access to our Creator and experience true joy. Really, the, everything, no, there's no, there is no other joy. It's all fake. The only joy we could have is to, to be known by God. And we have access to that great God, that Creator God, not by doing anything or coming from anywhere. He is and what He's done for us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus did not come to save, come to the world to save a specific ethnic group, a specific social class. He didn't come to save good people or bad people. None of that matters. Jesus came into this world to save whoever believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his unique son, that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes are two great words. (laughs) Whoever. That's you. That's your neighbors, your family, your loved ones. Whoever believes. If you're here this morning and you're listening to my voice or you're listening to my voice on a video or something and you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is holding you back? What is holding you back? If you think you're not good enough, you didn't come from the right family, someone hurt you, whatever. This isn't common to say it this way, but you need to repent of that. That's pride. That's what that is. You don't think you're good enough? Who are you? It's not about that. It's, what Jesus, it's about what Jesus did for you, whoever believes. Stop putting something in, in your way, in his way, so to speak. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. What matters is what he thinks about you, what he's done for you. That's what matters. Whatever crowd you're in, whatever it is you follow, wherever you find your identity, No matter who you are, where you came from, Jesus is calling out, come, follow me. I want to be very honest with you about following Jesus. This passage is very honest with us about what it means to follow Jesus. If the Lord has convicted you to follow him, maybe for the first time or for the 50th time, I don't know, there's something you need to know. There's a third pronouncement in this text. And you must understand it before you follow Jesus. There's something that you must understand before you step out of the crowd and you follow him. You step away from that broad way and you step into the narrow way of following Jesus. Up to this point, you've heard the pronouncement of favor, the pronouncement of inquiry. Well, finally, we come to the pronouncement of loss. Pronouncement of loss. Verses 23 through 26, I'll read those. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. 
Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father, Jesus says, will honor him. Jesus may be speaking to the Greeks here. He, he may be responding to the Greeks or the Jews. I'm not exactly sure. But, but he's really speaking to us, isn't he? He's speaking to a much wider audience. The Gentiles have come, and so has the hour of Jesus. Jesus uses that phrase, the hour, to speak of that fateful hour of his death. He uses it with a perfect tense verb. The hour has come. That is, the hour is here and it stays with us. There's no going back on this hour, is what Jesus is saying. It's here. And he offers an illustration of that hour in verse 24. It's a kind of paradox. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, he says, it bears much fruit. We don't have to be farmers to know that a crop will only come from a seed that's buried in the ground. We know that. It's a simple illustration. Therefore, the seed must be put to death in order to bring a harvest. It must die. Now, to whom does the seed refer? Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, right? Jesus is speaking of himself. His hour has come. He is the grain of wheat that must fall into the earth. He must suffer death through the unbelief of the Jews in order that he might grow up to become a rich harvest of faith, that all the nations would believe on him. Therefore, this pronouncement of loss is given to us by Jesus. In its first place, it's a pronouncement of self-loss. That is, Jesus will fall into the earth and die. But that pronouncement of loss does not stop there. Jesus not, does not only end with himself, he goes further. Remember, we're talking about what it means to follow Jesus. So he presses in. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus means to apply his analogy to more than himself. What is the meaning of verse 25? What does that mean? Jesus is teaching us that to love this life is a self-defeating process. To love this life is to destroy the very life that you seek to save. The very life you seek to hold on to with every step forward, every seeking after this life, you really take two steps back, don't you? You're trying to save this life, but at the same time, you're destroying this life by seeking to preserve it. Whoever loves his life loses it. Jesus is saying that if you love this life, you're destroying it right now. And he goes on further and he says, whoever hates this life is very strong language that Jesus is using. I'm just a messenger. These are not my words. 
Whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. Now, when Jesus says, whoever hates this life, it doesn't literally mean we are to hate our life. That's not what he means. Rather, he's using a phrase that communicates the opposite of love. It's the antithesis of love. It's the other side of love, right? What's the other side of love? Hate. It's the antithesis of love. So Jesus uses the word hate. Here's what Jesus is saying. People, have, people who have the right priorities have such an attitude of love for God. They have such an attitude of love for God that by comparison, all the other interests of their life appears hatred. That's what he's saying. And so here we have finally come to what you must understand before you follow Jesus. This is a part of being a follower of Jesus. The, this isn't a full gospel message if it doesn't contain these parts of it. It's more than a pronouncement to follow Jesus. At least if we're actually going to follow the words of Jesus and listen to Him who we're supposed to be following. Before you step out of the crowd and follow Jesus, you must understand there is a cost. There's a cost of allegiance to Jesus. We must exchange our allegiance to this world for an allegiance to Jesus. And Jesus communicates this, this to us in the harshest language possible. Difficult language. He goes even so far as we're seeing here to say, you must hate this life. Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Notice the conditional statement there. A condition has to be met in order for something to be true. In order to be a disciple, what's the condition that has to be met? We have to hate our family. So Jesus said. You remember that would, the would-be follower of Jesus... He made a request, I read it earlier, to bury his father. And another asked to say goodbye to his family before following Jesus. What did Jesus say? Sure, I'll wait in the village. Pack your bags. Spend time with them. Have a feast. I'll wait for you here and I'll, I'll be ready for you when you're ready to follow me. Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus' response is some of the hardest words that are spoken to him. Let the dead bury their own dead, is what he said. Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God, is what he said. Again, the idea is that there's such a stark contrast between loving this world and the things of the world and following after Jesus, that the comparison, the words we would use is loving my life and hating my life. Loving my family, hating my family. Loving my labor, hating my labor, whatever it is. The idea is the antithesis, the contrast between the two. By comparison, it's what they look like. It's not literally hate your family. If you're a child here today, I'm not telling you to hate your mom and dad. 
nor is Jesus. Love your mom and dad. In fact, you have, if you're a child, I'll give you a minute of advice here. From Scripture, there's one command that you have in Scripture as children, right? One command. It's simple for you. It's harder for us. We have lots of commands. You have one command. Children, obey your parents. There's your command. (laughs) You do that, you'll be fine. Love your parents, yes. But by comparison, love Jesus more. You want to love your mom and dad? Love Jesus. Husbands, you want to love your wives? Love Jesus. Wives, you want to love your husbands? Love Jesus. Church, you want to love each other? Love Jesus. Love Jesus. He's the, our priority. He's at the top. Where am I at? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not implying, and these verses I don't think are implying that each of us must bear the same cost for following Jesus. There's a different, there's, there's a personalization here to each of us. Each of us has to think about and consider what does it mean in my, with my own life, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And I make that point because there's another place where Jesus tells a man who was delivered from a demon, he actually says to that man, go home. So to some, he says, leave your family. And to others, he says, go home. Mark 5, 18 and 19, go home, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so from that, I'm saying, Jesus knows your heart. He knows what that looks like. I should say, well, he knows, of course, but you know. You know what God is calling you to do. I can't tell you that. He demands that you do business with, what, with whatever's holding your allegiance. Demonstrating your allegiance might mean leaving your family. I don't know. Demonstrating your allegiance might mean going to your family. Only you and the Lord know which is for you. I trust you can see what the pronouncement of loss teaches us about following Jesus. Families, celebrities, sports teams, YouTubers, TikTokers, they're happy to share their followers. Jesus, not so much. He's not happy to share followers. We cannot be a follower of Jesus and have allegiance with others in the same way. Our allegiance to him has to rise to the top. This, of course, presses into our modern sensibility about religious charity and inclusivity. This is a, a message of exclusivity. That Jesus is the only way. And he must be priority in our life. Jesus refuses to share the stage of your heart with anyone or anything else. He demands our unique and exclusive love for him. A love that must tower above all earthly powers. You remember Luther's words, the great hymn? Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom reigns forever. That's my focus. And the narrow way is the only way, the only path that leads to that kingdom. The broad way leads to destruction. 
We must be called out of the crowds and out from that Broadway to the narrow path of discipleship. Now, with all that this life has to offer, why in the world would we do that? You only have one life. I don't know, 80 years? If you're Gene, you're going to live forever. (laughs) Why would we do this? You get one life, one chance, and I got to follow Jesus? And I can't pursue passions and pleasures and joy? But I have to come to church on a Sunday and read my Bible and pray? Why would I do that? I'm going to make money. I want to travel. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, look at that, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. No doubt, church, there is a cost to following Jesus. There's a great cost. You might suffer immensely. Men and women have. You might have to leave your family. You might have to go back to your family and you don't want to. You might have to give up your possessions. Give up your home. I don't know. Not do the thing that you love to do. I don't know what it is. You know that. It comes at a cost. But following Jesus leads to ever-expansive joy. The Father will honor us. Think about all that's wrapped up in that little, those couple words. What that would look like to be honored by the creator of the universe. The one who spoke the world into existence and all the galaxies out there is going to honor me? Jesus said in Luke 18, there's no one who has left house or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time or in the life to come. It's a promise. Whatever this world has to offer, we'll have more, richer, deeper, abiding joy. You see, the way, in the way that a grain of wheat must die in order to bear much fruit, so must we. We must die. And the point here, in this last point here, in, the ver- in this last verse, is to say this paradox of living through dying, it offers unceasing joy. It's worth it. Matthew 5.12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great the great reward. I want to end with a story. I know it's 12. Please forgive me. It's a brief story. It's, it's one that you're familiar with. It's the story of Jim Elliot. It's a, it's a pretty intense story. and I, I don't tell it because 
I don't want to be fickle with the way I say it. I, I don't think I've ever told you the story of Jim Elliot, but I, I'm sure you know it. It's written by Elizabeth Elliot, his wife. It's, it was a, came out in a book through Gates of Splendor. And uh, more recently in the movie, The End of the Spear, you're probably familiar with that, that movie, the story of Nate Saint and Steve Saint. Jim, Steve, and three other men landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador on Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956. These missionaries had been dreaming of this moment for some time. They were hoping to re- reach the A- Aka Indians with the good news of Jesus. The tribe was no- notoriously dangerous. Others had tried to reach this tribe, but they had failed. Before the men landed, they actually flew over the tribe and they passed out things and they greeted, they shouted greetings to the Indians as they flew around in their, pa- their planes. I can only imagine what these, these people thought about these white guys flying around in a plane, yelling at them. They dropped gifts and, and eventually they, they did set up a small camp, camp there in an area which they knew, intentionally camped there in, in an area that they knew the Indians would find them. They knew that the, there would be danger in doing this and understood that following Jesus in this way might come at a great cost, the greatest cost. Friday, January 6th, three Akas, one man and two women, approached them. They exchanged greetings, and the missionaries showed them rubber bands and yo-yos and balloons, different kinds of objects they knew that the Indians would have never seen before. They even took one of the men up in a plane and flew around the village. Two days later, January 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30, and there was, there was silence. When the message came, plane was sent, rescue party went out. Four of the men were found dead. They were speared to death. Fifth man, they never found. All five of these men, Jim Elliott, Nate Sate, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Eudorian, were killed for the sake of Christ. All were married. Four of them were fathers. You know, Jim Elliott's the most famous of those men, probably because he has that great quote, that great line that he said. You're familiar with it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. I can't keep this. It's passing away. You're no fool to give it up. For what? To gain what we could never lose. Eternal life. Unceasing joys with our Savior. Jim Elliot, those other men and those families, they, they saw through the lies of this world. They saw through all of that. They saw that the world, that all the world can offer is emptiness. I wanted to read you this, tell you the story because I recently came across a quote from Jim Elliott's diary. These are the, the last words that were written by him. This was discovered, of course, after he had died. He wrote, I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious, he said, to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattails and the heavens hailing your heart, to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. What more could man ask, he says? 
Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy, he shall give me a host of children. He means converts. That I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies, whose finger ends set them to burning. But if not, if only I may see him touch his garments and smile into his eyes, ah, then not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. Oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours, yours, which has shown so long, excuse me, which has so long awaited you. Now, he says, there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then, he says, none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven, take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures, charm your creatures. I tell you that story because it demonstrates the cost of following Jesus in a very stark way. I'm not saying you have to go be missionaries and die for Jesus. It demonstrates the cost of following Jesus. And again, you, you know that in your heart. And it demonstrates the joy of following Jesus. You don't have to be speared by Aka Indians to be a disciple or follower of Jesus. The Lord will tell you what you must do. Jesus will guide you. Whoever loves his life loses it. Hear the word of the Lord. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Amen.